to the book of Acts. We return our attention this morning after a couple of weeks away from this book, Dr. Luke's second volume, his first, of course, being the Gospel of Luke. Often through the book of Acts, the good physician has, and the Gospel before that, the good physician has shown us the spiritual warfare that always boils just under the surface. He has let it rise from time to time to the top, helping us to understand uh, both the kind of in, uh, conflict that is always taking place in the unseen realms uh, and to grasp the struggles that the church, the early church of our Lord Jesus Christ, faced in her earliest days, which, as it turns out, are not very different from the struggles we face today. Was the early church persecuted? So is the contemporary church. Did wicked men seek her destruction early on? Men like Paul, whose treatment of Christians later was resembled by Nazis dragging Jews out of their homes, oftentimes by their hair, loading them on rail cars or shooting them there in the streets. So wicked men brutally continue in their attempts to destroy the church. Mr. Shields has just prayed about some of that going on in Uzbekistan. We could also turn our eyes to the northern Nigerian cities, where, according to the voice of the martyrs, Christians are targeted and, quote, butchered like animals in the streets nearly every day. They're targeted in their homes, at their businesses, on farms, while traveling in the highways, and even uh, in their churches. Barred from the marketplaces, the source of their food, they have been described as walking corpses on the street waiting for our burial. But not all of the assaults on the church waged by the evil one have come from the outside. Defections and betrayals from within. Ananias and Sapphira, for example, in our recent memory from this history, show that Satan has his way with many inside the church as well. Our text this morning returns us to that theme. False professions of faith would not be unique to Jerusalem, but be found where the gospel is spread here in this chapter in Samaria too. Nor have we been spared in the modern church. Even in this particular church, we have known, haven't we, the sad but bracing experience of receiving people into this church only to see them sooner or later defect from the faith, turn their backs on Christ in whom they professed to believe and in whose name they were baptized. Simon the sorcerer is just one quintessential example of such falseness and such apostasy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are not our favorite passages, we confess. Uh, We would, frankly, rather skip them altogether. But uh, you have, by your Spirit, inspired these words to be written 
by the hand of Luke, your servant, and you have preserved them to this day for us, and you have promised that your word is powerful and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, that it divides bone from marrow and soul from spirit, that it will not return to you void, but accomplish all that you intend. And so, Father, we pray that you will accomplish what you intend according to your own word. Now, as your word is heard, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin back at verse 1, even though we considered that uh, last time. For context, Acts 1, 8, rather, verse 1 through 24. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Imagine that. What, maybe 10,000 Christians driven from Jerusalem? The whole church in Jerusalem reduced now from 10,000 maybe to 12 Devout men, verse 2, buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And that's why he has the name that some of you know him by, Simon Magus, or Magus. It's often pronounced, I suppose, um, Simon Great. Verse 11, And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter, uh, sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. By the way, we have called the practice of purchasing privileges or office in the church ever since by the name Simony. 
Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me. To the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That request for prayer, by the way, should not be confused with repentance. Peter had told Simon to pray, and Simon threw it right back in Peter's face and said, You pray. Many of you know that for the past several months, I've been leading a weekly Bible study with a group of men who are recovering addicts. Some of them have been addicted to alcohol, others to various and sundry drugs. Many have been also distributors of these and dealers of them. Several of them are convicts as well. Some have spent years, uh, one or two of them decades, in jail, and others are preparing to face sentencing even now. Of those men, some have been believers from their youth. Others have never come to the faith. Some claim to believe, and others show very little interest in the Lord at all. Others, a core of them, are absolutely on fire for Jesus. They hang on every word of our studies and participate with vim and vigor, loving to engage themselves in the study of the Bible. You might imagine that for those last ones who have been enslaved by drugs and alcohol, even to the point of committing crimes to support their habits, who have known in the past what it means to get clean for a while and then only relapse into addiction again. For those, I say, whose lives have alternated between slavery and and freedom in some regards, only to slide back into slavery again, the big question for them is... Is this permanent? Is this real? This conversion to Christ, is this for good? Or am I only going to relapse spiritually later? For them, the question is not an ivory tower theological debate. They want to know. Can I be lost again? Could this be unreal? Could I just be imagining things? Will I relapse? These are questions that keep these guys awake at night. When they ask me about this, as they often do, or the subject comes up, as it does, it seems, every other time we meet, you'll understand my pastoral reluctance to bring them to chapter 8 of Acts. This is the second full account in the book of Acts. The third in Luke's two volumes, if you include the gospel and Judas, of conversions that were somewhat less than fully genuine. What shall we do with these biblical accounts? Can I fall 
from grace, one fellow asked me just a few days ago, locking eyes with me and desperate for the answer. Well, let me begin by answering that question right now along the same lines that I answered him. Of course, we cannot believe the Bible and accept at the same time a view of divine grace that sees it as defectible. In other words, divine grace is invincible. Where God has poured out his grace on a person, where he has converted him or her, given that person a a new heart, a heart of flesh in the place of his heart of stone, no one, not even that person himself, can tear him away from God's grace. No one and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, I reminded him. No one can snatch us away from Christ. Christ is holding on to us. There's that set of hands, and there's another set of hands holding on to us. The Father's hands, too. Jesus said it this way, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. And my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. There are actually many lines of biblical argumentation for what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Scripture teaches us, for one, of the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. He shall save his people. Or as we just heard Jesus put it, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Period. There's also the enduring power of Christ's intercession to consider in the mix. He lives, ever lives to make intercession for us. And if he is interceding for you, In heaven, what in the world could overwhelm him and take you away? We could add a third line of biblical argument. The power and the government of Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling over all things, as Paul says, for the church. Working all things together for good. The same one who began the good work in you will bring it to completion God's eternal and immutable, that is his unchangeable love and election, we could go on to add, that he has chosen us to be holy, that the Father has given us to the Son, and Jesus promised to raise us up on that last day, mean that the truly saved can never, ever be lost. But, someone will say, What about Simon? What about Simon? Did not Luke write plainly, and we just read it, that even Simon believed? There it is, verse 13 in black and white. Even Simon himself believed. And the text goes on to indicate in passing that he had also been baptized. Ah, yes, that is true. And it reminds us that there's another strain of biblical teaching that we must also remember. We heard it ourselves from Jesus back in the Gospel of Luke. 
Remember in that parable in Luke chapter 8? He told us to expect superficial and temporary responses to the gospel. Even responses that were quite dramatic at the time. Jesus said people even receiving the word with joy. Only to wither and fall away. But Simon believed, you say. Even Luke says so. Yes, he did. And we don't deny it. So what do we make of Simon? Here's John Calvin in his commentary on the passage. He argues for a middle ground, some place between genuine faith and mere pretense. The man who had infatuated the whole city with his tricks receives the truth of God along with others. He does not surrender himself to Christ with love that is sincere and from the heart. Otherwise, his perverse ambition and his ungodly and common estimate of the gifts of the Spirit would not be breaking out at once. Yet I do not agree with many who think that he only made a pretense of faith since he did not believe. Luke clearly asserts that he did believe. And a reason is added that he was moved with admiration. How therefore does he betray himself as a hypocrite a little later? I reply that there is some middle position between faith and mere pretense. There are many who, although they have not been regenerated by the spirit of adoption and do not yield themselves to God with genuine love from the heart, yet have yet been conquered by the word of God, the power of the word, and not only acknowledge the truth of what is taught, but they are touched by fear of God so that they accept the teaching. They think that they do believe. And this is the temporary faith which Christ mentions, specifically when the seed of the word which has been received in the mind is yet quickly choked by various worldly cares or bad desires so that it never comes to maturity. But on the contrary, rather degenerates into a useless weed. Simon's faith was like that. He feels that the teaching of the gospel is true and is forced by awareness of his conscience to accept it as true. But the fundamental thing is lacking. The denial of himself. In other words, without contradicting all that the Bible has to say about the fact that the true saint is never lost, we must hold to the position that a person may be considered a true saint even by others, even by himself, and yet remain lost. There's a kind of belief, you see, a kind of faith we could even call it, which is not saving belief 
is not saving faith. John Stott takes that same position in his study of this passage, and he points, to, points out that the New Testament language does not always distinguish between believing and professing to believe. And he footnotes, you guessed it, James 2 verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Now what John Calvin and John Stott describe in theory, John Bunyan describes by experience, what he experienced before his genuine conversion. Looking back on his pre-conversion life, the author of Pilgrim's Progress remembers that because I knew no better, I fell in very eagerly with the religion of the times, to wit, to go to church twice a day, and that too with the foremost And there should I sing and say as others did. Withal, I was so overrun with the spirit of superstition that I adored and that with great devotion even all things, both the high place, priest, clerk, vestment, service, and what else belonged to the church, counting all things holy that were therein contained. But all this time I was not sensible of the danger and evil of sin. I was kept from considering that sin would damn me, whatever religion soever I followed, unless I was found in Christ. Nay, I never thought of Christ, nor whether there was one or no. Practically speaking, this reality that people may seem to be converted to us and even to themselves and may seem to have been an example of a delightful and exciting addition to the church, to us, only to wither and return to the world. I say this is a matter for us of great pain. We've known that pain as a congregation, haven't we? On more than one occasion. And we've learned, haven't we, that there are reasons why this happens and why people seem to respond favorably to the gospel, but do not really repent and believe, not savingly. For Bunyan, it was that he was overrun by a spirit of superstition. Simon's attraction may have fallen along somewhat the same lines, mixed, of course, with his own greed and pride. He saw the power that Philip exercised to heal and to drive out demons. It made Simon's parlor tricks look pretty paltry by comparison, so he wanted for himself some of that action. Even if there was mixed in some genuine fear of God in his heart. For some today, it's the attractiveness of what they see in the church and in the lives of Christians in the church. They have seen what the gospel has done in others' lives, and they want those things for themselves. They want to be more generous. They want to be more gentle. They want to have more self-control. They want to be better dads. They want to be better moms, better husbands, better wives. They want the joy and that peace that they've seen in those who have received the gospel indeed. And they hope to get close enough as to enjoy 
and do indeed for a time enjoy to an extent those things when they enter into the atmosphere of the church. Is that not the very kind of thing that the author of Hebrews writes about? Those who taste the heavenly gift, who share in the Holy Spirit. There's some language for you. Who taste of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, only to fall away never again to be restored to repentance. Others crave and love the kind of fellowship that exists in the church of people who really genuinely care for them, like people experience when they come into the pale of this church, and as you do so well. We've had people come to our church intending to continue because of the atmosphere, the family atmosphere here, only to fizzle as fast as they flashed For some, it is the attraction of a particularly pretty girl. And haven't we a bunch of those? Or a handsome prospect for a husband. For yet others, it is the attraction of the tradition, the custom, particularly of our day and age, as marked as it is by smallness, a loss of a sense of transcendence, a loss of the holy. And closely related to that, maybe it's just about playing out a fear of judgment. With stricken consciences, they hope to get from Jesus what they just can't seem to get from their psychiatrist. No matter how many times they meet with them. Relief from the weight of guilt and shame. I hear that Christ gives that relief and they want it so much. But at the last, they are unwilling to give to Christ what he wants, their hearts broken, contrite, submissive to him. Who knows? But in all of this, there are, you will not be surprised to hear, some lessons for you. The first ones have to do with the way that you consider others. And the second, the way that you must deal with yourselves. Concerning others, we must remember that we cannot discern true professions from false ones. Not particularly at the first. Philip didn't. And he could perform miracles. When you speak to someone about the gospel and they respond favorably, profess faith in Christ, you can't tell whether that profession is true or not. And frankly, it's not for you to try. Even your elders, when they're approached by people who profess faith in Christ to enter the church, must respond to such professions with the judgment of charity. Simon professed faith in Christ, and he was baptized. He wasn't placed on probation. Philip didn't say, whoa there, partner, slow this thing down. Let's uh, look for some fruit before we, you know, baptize you. No, he believed. And having been baptized, he continued with Philip. That's the biblical pattern. 
Of course, the biblical pattern also involves and requires church discipline, without which the whole thing breaks down. The church that will open its arms to all who profess faith in Christ in obedience to the scriptures must also be willing to discipline in obedience to the scriptures and, if needed, to ultimately put the person out of the church whose faith reveals itself to have been a farce. But for ourselves, this. Let's take a sober look at ourselves. Let every one of us look very carefully at himself or herself. Sometimes we call this self-examination. Genuine faith is not, after all, merely a matter of the lips of what you say. Anyone can say he believes. Simon did. So, let us think carefully and look closely. This is a matter of the heart. Peter said so in verse 21. He said to Simon, your heart is not right before God. Had Simon paused to consider his heart, he would have realized that he was not really saved. But, but then again, we can't really see our hearts, can we? We can't see others' hearts. We've made that point already. We can't see our own hearts even because they're so deep and so deceptive even to us. So what shall we examine? Our lives. Our speech. Our conduct as well as our thoughts and our attitudes and our motives. Don't be afraid to ask of yourself, to demand of yourself, do I live what I profess to believe? Does what I say I believe show in my life? Do I live differently than I would as a non-believer? Maybe ask someone else, someone with discernment to give you some feedback. Do you see in my life the fruits, the evidences of real Christian faith? Now, not that we're looking or that you should be looking for a perfect person. Mind this. But a person whose life gives some evidence of the progress of God's goodness and grace at work in you, you'll find in the process, of course you will, you will find much that needs yet to be done. That's true of every Christian And you will find much by way of hypocrisy. That grief, too, all real Christians share with you. But a close examination of your life and the application of God's word to it will show you, if you are a genuine Christian, some fruit of repentance. Some sense of, not only sense, but real progress. If not, 
then it is time for you genuinely to repent and believe and turn to the Lord in reality and not just with lip service. If so, you will be encouraged by what, you're, what you see. You will find that, yes, my faith is genuine faith, the real article, a true heart of faith that overflows in my life. Either way, let the effect of such an examination be that you set the hooks of your faith the more deeply in Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Redeemer, which apparently Simon never did. Amen.